Well, there are a lot of things in life that just drain us completely. Don't look at the person next to you. And there are some things that fill our tank. Now, personally, for me, one of the things that fills my tank is traveling. I love to travel, domestically, internationally. My wife and I have self-proclaimed wanderlust. We would travel the world nonstop if we could. We just love traveling. And so a few years ago, I was able to go on one of our Bethel Go trips to Lebanon. Now listen, don't go, first of all, shameless plug, you should go on a Go trip. We have several coming up. One of them is to Lebanon, by the way, but don't go because you want to see Lebanon, because you want to see the world, because you want to travel the world. That's not why I went. I went because I wanted to support our ministry partners, to encourage them, to serve alongside them, to see what God is doing among them and among the local Christians there. And so we had a blast. We, we were there about 10 days. We were working among Syrian refugees, and it was awesome. It was so good. I enjoyed it so much. And then about day seven, day eight, I wanted to be home. You ever travel internationally and you're just like, oh, I just want to be home again. We call that being homesick. I got homesick. And so I remember I'm on the flight home. We're traveling back. You know, it's a long flight. And I'm like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there? Which you can't say to the pilot. But, you know, are we there yet? It's a long flight. I just couldn't wait to be home. We get to our layover city in the U.S. I think it was New York or somewhere. You go through customs and I'm like, ah! American soil, I'm in my home country. And then we fly into Chicago, and now I'm getting closer. I'm not quite home, but I'm at least in the Chicagoland area. I'm in, I'm in the general region, not home, but I'm feeling more and more at home. I'm, I'm closer and closer. I'm getting there. And then we make the drive from O'Hare home, and we cross the border from our foreign diplomacy in Illinois <laughs> to the friendly confines of Indiana, I know some of you live in Illinois. I'm not knocking you. But, you know, we're getting closer and closer. We're in our home state. And then we get into our home city. And then I'm in the car and I pull up to the house. I see the house in the distance. And I pull into the garage. I get out of the car. I get my luggage. And I go in the house. And who is waiting for me? But my family that just descends upon me. And I'm at home. I'm home. See, home is less about location and more about those to whom your heart belongs. Home is where the heart is. Oh, so sweet, so sentimental. Is it true? Kind of. You know, it's, it's fascinating throughout Scripture, we see this theme of home over and over. You know, interestingly enough, if you look in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it's interesting how the Bible depicts the Garden of Eden. You have all this lavishness, all this flourishing life, vibrant life, brilliant glory and beauty. And in the midst of the garden, you have the tree of life. But all this beauty, all this glory, all this brilliance, the tree of life is not what made the garden of Eden home. It was God dwelled with man. God walked with mankind in the cool of the garden, it says. And so here you have God dwelling with man, but then you get to chapter 3. Oh, Genesis chapter 3. And the plot thickens, and it takes a wicked left turn. Because in Genesis 3, if home is where the heart is, we say, God, I don't want you in the home of my heart anymore. I want to do my own thing. I'm made in the image of God, but I'm going to do things in the image of man. And so we reject God from 
our heart's home. And God says, then I can't be at home with you. And humanity was exiled from the garden. No longer home, but wandering in shame, longing for that permanent place with the Lord once again. And then you look through the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you see the temple of the Lord. Now, the temple of the Lord, this is fascinating, has all kinds of imagery of the garden. Do you guys realize that? Like the lampstand, all these things, there's imagery of the garden. So it kind of points back to the Garden of Eden where God dwelled with man, but it really points forward to heaven. In fact, in John chapter 2, Jesus calls the temple my father's house. Remember that. In my father's house. And so it's a facsimile. It's a foreshadowing pointing to our father's house in heaven. And it showed how once again God could dwell with man in the garden. How mankind could be home. And then you get to the last two chapters of the Bible. Revelation 21 and 22. The new heaven and the new earth. And once again you have this scene of a garden. So the Bible is bookended, begins with a garden, ends with a garden, and once again, God dwells with man in the garden forever. Now, all of these things point to the Lord being the center, being the heart of our dwelling place in glory. Oh, there are all kinds of errant, terrible views of heaven. Like you ask the general person in our society what heaven's going to be like and they're like oh well I don't know we're just I guess probably going to sit in some pews it's going to be dull sing some worn out hymns checking our watch waiting for eternity to play out or we're going to be sitting on a cloud next to some fat chubby baby angel playing a harp while all the partiers are in hell they're they're living it up they're having a good time is it is that really what heaven is is that what we have to look forward to Do you guys realize that the Bible, do you know how many times the Bible speaks to heaven? Over 600 times. You think God might want us to know about heaven? So, let's see what the Bible says. Let's let's see what Jesus says about heaven. So turn to John chapter 14. As we continue in our series in the upper room, John chapter 14. And I'm going to ask that you stand in honor of the reading of God's word. John 14, Jesus, here's him speaking. He's speaking to his disciples. Okay, verse 1. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, in fact, let's say this together. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Very well-known verse. We're going to cover that next week. Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You guys can be seated. Let not your hearts be troubled. Now, no one in this room has ever had a troubled heart, right? No one has ever had worry and concern and, you know, had your faith in Jesus waver due to difficult circumstances, right? We don't have to worry about that. Of course you have. We all have. That's why this is so pertinent. 
You know, the word for troubled, troubled hearts, is the same word for troubled waters, like choppy waters, stirred up waters. So when you have a, a troubled heart, man, it's, it's like there's an internal storm brewing. There's this internal tempest where nothing is settled, you, nothing is calm. You just feel like raging seas tossing you to and fro. You know, there are two things in particular that can trouble our heart. Feeling like we have no place where we belong and feeling like we are alone. And Jesus addresses both of these concerns in John 14. You know, being troubled in and of itself is not an indication of sin. It's not a failure because you know what? Jesus in John 12, 27 and 13, 21 and in the Garden of Gethsemane says, my soul is troubled, my heart is troubled. So if Jesus had a troubled heart, if he had a troubled soul, it's not sinful in and of himself, in and of itself. Now it can be sinful, but Jesus doesn't have a troubled heart in the ways that we do, not in a sinful way, not in a worrisome way, but he is disturbed, he's filled with concern. And so it's natural to have a troubled heart. And so here the disciples have troubled hearts. Why? Well, they had followed Jesus completely. I mean, they had left everything to follow Jesus, burned the ships, so to speak. I'm going all in on Jesus, putting all my chips on Jesus. I am following him wholeheartedly. I, there, there is no going back. There ain't no return. It's all in on Jesus. And then Jesus says, oh, by the way, one of you is going to betray me. And Peter one of the best among you, he's going to deny me. And all of you are going to desert me. And I'm going to depart from you. And where I'm going, you can't follow. And furthermore, they have put all their hope in this Jewish Messiah. And now he's saying he's going to die? How can a dead man conquer the Romans? In Jesus, they had found their place. They had found their home. And so separation from him was unthinkable. They have troubled hearts. They're beginning to be homesick, so to speak. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Set your hearts at ease. Stop being troubled. Don't let your concer concerns consume you. You ever had your concerns consume you? Just that's all you think about, all these concerns, all these thoughts. But Jesus isn't saying it in a way to look down on them. He's not being judgmental here. His tone is that of a loving, comforting shepherd because he is. You ever comforted someone or tried to comfort someone who is deeply disturbed, who has a deeply troubled heart? And you put your arm around them. What do you say to them in that moment? Oh, it's all gonna be okay. It's all fine. Yeah, but what if it's not? What if they have cancer? What if a loved one just died? What if they're going through depression or some mental health issue? Or what if they just lost their job? What if their spouse left them? A significant other dumped them? How, how can you guarantee that things in this life will be fine, that it'll be okay? You know, we, we have these generalizations. Now, it is true, this too shall pass. That's a biblical concept. But pithy sayings in the moment may not comfort a troubled heart. And Jesus doesn't give a pithy saying it's not wishful thinking that would ease their troubled hearts. Jesus gives them truths to ponder to calm the raging seas in their hearts. He says, believe in God. Believe also in me. There was a movie 
that came out 30 years ago. You probably heard of it, a little movie called Aladdin. And in Aladdin, you have this scene where Aladdin is on his magic carpet and he floats right up to the palace. On the balcony, there's Princess Jasmine. And he's trying to get her to come on to the magic carpet to go for a ride. So he's beckoning to himself. And you know, then, I can show you the world. Shining shim. Okay, I'm not going to sing the song. <laughs> Some of you are like, he's singing Disney show tunes. You're about to sing along with me. Um, some of you are like, our pastor is so awkward. You're not wrong. But right before he does that, right before he shows her a whole new world, he holds out his hand, and what does he say? Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Now, I can imagine Jesus, whether literally or proverbially, holding out his hand to the disciples. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? That's what he's saying. In fact, the connotation is keep believing in God. Keep pursuing belief, persevering in trust. Continue to also trust in me. And to a Jewish group, this is an astounding claim. They know to believe in God. The Jewish people believed in God. But now this carpenter from Nazareth is saying, hey, as you believe in God, in the same way, believe also in me. Wow. It's almost as if he's saying, I and the Father are one, because he is, which we'll get to in two weeks in verse 8. Don Carson says it this way, if Jesus invariably speaks the words of God and performs the acts of God, should he not be trusted like God? Trust is the antidote to a troubled heart. And Jesus assures them first with, with faith. It is belief in Jesus, trust in Jesus that calms the choppy waters of concern. Jesus is the steadying factor. I think about when Jesus' disciples are on the Sea of Galilee and it's a stormy night. The wind and the waves are kicking up and it's just tossing the boat to and fro. These waves are crashing in all around them and they're terrified. And then they see this figure walking on the water and one of them says, it's a ghost, which is hilarious, I think. And another says, no, 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 I think it's the Lord. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, beckon me to come to you out on the water. And Jesus says, come. And Peter gets out on the boat among the choppy waters, the troubled waters, and he walks on the water as if it's as level as the ground you and I walk on. And it's only when he takes his eyes off of Jesus that his feet begin to falter. Jesus was the steadying factor. And then Jesus gets in the boat with Peter and the disciples, and he instantly calms the winds and the waves, and Jesus can calm the tempest in your heart, the troubled waters of concern you are going through. And so, here they are troubled, and Jesus says, believe in me. And then he gives them this amazing assurance. He says, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. Now, I read, I don't know, one to two dozen commentaries, and a few of them were like, well, Jesus is talking about heaven here as if it's like, it's a metaphor, it's a state of mind. Really? I read a scholar that said this, paradise here is a spiritual condition more than a spatial location. Really? That's not what Jesus says. Heaven is a real place. It's real. In fact, the Greek word for place here means actual location. There's nothing that suggests metaphor. 
In verse three, Jesus even says, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna take you with me to where I am, which communicates an actual place. He's transferring us from one physical location to another physical destination. You know, earlier, like I said, Jesus referred to the temple as his father's house. But remember, the temple pointed to an infinitely greater, far, infinitely more glorious, eternal temple where his people in our glorified bodies, we enter unceasing, devoted service and worship to God. This is not a metaphor, folks. Heaven is real. And Jesus says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. The word for room here in the Greek is related to the word abide. It's the word mone. And abide is a word that John uses in his gospel 40 times. We're going to see it when we get to chapter 15. Over and over, abide in me. As a branch abides in the vine, so abide in me. Abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide, abide, abide. So now this word for room could be the word abode or dwelling place. It's a hospitable area within a house. Notice, look at verse 3. The word place is singular, but rooms is plural. For years, actually for centuries, the copy of the scriptures that believers had was called the Latin Vulgate. Was, the whole Bible was in Latin. And in this verse, in John 14, the word that they use, that I believe is correctly translated rooms, they use the Latin word mansio. Now what English word do you think comes from mansio? Mansions. And the King James Version picks up on that. So that's why we have songs like, oh, I'm going to be in a mansion on the hill, you know, a mansion in glory. And that's an interesting thought to think of. But I'm about to burst your bubble. Do we get mansions in heaven? Probably not. The word Jesus uses here is dwelling places. The intended meaning is not that we'll each have this massive materialistic mansion, like we get our own gilded castle in the sky. No, God is not a God of materialism. Instead, there seems to be one gigantic estate belonging to the Lord, and we have separate dwelling places on it, possibly even separate rooms. When Pastor Steve and Pastor Ben, that's the HP campus pastor, when we were discussing this passage this week, uh, Ben goes, okay, so we have like, there are like millions, maybe billions of mother-in-law suites. Now for some, a mother-in-law suite doesn't sound like heaven, maybe like another place. Not for me. I love my mother-in-law very much. And in case she's listening to the recording of this message, let me reiterate, I love my mother-in-law very much. <laughs> but maybe there are rooms, maybe there are suites, maybe there are dwelling places. Maybe, you know, come and go with me to my father's house. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms, with a big, big table, with lots and lots of food. Big, big yard where we can play football. Okay, no, that's probably not going to happen, but I could tell who was around in the 90s because that's an audio at Adrenaline song, Big House. Is, is that the case? Well, kind of. It's a big house with many rooms. That's the idea. See, back in the day, they didn't build houses with the idea in mind that most of their daily living would be spent in that house. Instead, Jewish families spent most of their time outside the house, and then they'd go to the house to rest. The average home for a Jewish family was a one-room dwelling. Rooms were often added on as the family grew, whether by birth or by marriage. 
And so over decades, over generations, their dwelling place would grow. The family would grow. The house would grow. And so what Jesus is doing here is using an illustration of a lovely, loving, tight-knit family community. That's what heaven is, a loving, tight family community. Christ is saying that he would prepare a place for us where we get to dwell with God and with one another in close communion forever. Come on, who's excited about that? The word room suggests cozy, warm, intimate, hospitable, while the word house connotes spacious, So heaven is not only a place filled with his glory, but it's a place filled with his people. And you may be thinking, yeah, but there may be millions, maybe hundreds of millions of followers of Jesus, past, present, and future. How is that possible? Well, I'm telling you, God is God. There's more than enough space for every follower of Jesus in the Father's house. Do you realize in Revelation 21, 16, it actually gives us the dimensions of the new Jerusalem the heavenly city that we get to spend eternity in. Do you realize that? There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And in the heavenly city, in the new Jerusalem, here are the dimensions. It's a perfect square. The width is 1,380 miles. The length is 1,380 miles. So the surface area is 1.9 million square miles. Folks, that's half of the U.S. I think there's enough room for us. There's room for you. Physically and, and more important, spiritually, heaven is both intimate and spacious. And I believe, in fact, I, I know, because the Bible speaks to this, we certainly will be able to recognize one another. Do you guys realize that? I'll be able to recognize you, and you'll recognize me in our glorified bodies. And Jesus, in, in Luke 16, verse 9, seems to insinuate that we will be able to open up our eternal dwellings to one another. So I'm going to have you over. You're going to have me over. No doubt we get to fellowship together forever. We get to dine together, eat together, exercise hospitality, which is a Christ-like quality, exercise creativity. Maybe we get to make meals in heaven. I don't know. But you better have me over. (laughs) We'll have Jesus over. I don't know how it works, but it's this idea of tight, loving family community. And Jesus says, if it were not so, wouldn't I have told you? Would I lie to you? Again, trust me. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, how is Jesus preparing a place? Well, Randy Alcorn, who's a pastor and theologian, he wrote a book years ago called Heaven, which is so good. It's about four or 500 pages. It's a big book. All those 600 references in Scripture to heaven, he digs into them. Now, it's speculation, some of it, but it's sanctified speculation. And here's what he says. If the Lord prepared Eden so carefully and lavishly for mankind in six days, which he does, in Genesis 2.8, it says the Lord God himself planted a garden to the, in the east of Eden. So God is gardening on behalf of mankind in the Garden of Eden. Do you realize that? And, and, and if that's the case, what has he fashioned in the place he's been preparing for us in the 2,000 years since he left this world? It's an interesting thought. There's a family at the Bethel Crown Point campus who owns a bed and breakfast called Songbird Prairie. 
and it's a phenomenal bed and breakfast. In fact, it's one of the top rated in the entire state of Indiana. Now, they're, they're not endorsing this in, in my sermon. I'm not getting royalties here. But if you go there, tell them Jared sent you. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. So Sky and I got to go there a couple years ago. We did a little marriage retreat there for a couple days, and it was so fun and so beautiful. And I mean, their attention to detail was immaculate. In the morning, they would, we went around uh, this time, actually in the fall, and they would get these leaves uh, gathered around for their property, and they would press them between two transparent glass plates that they would put breakfast on. And then they put microphones around their property out in the woods so you can hear the sounds of nature as you were eating. And then they put bird feeders along the window so we saw dozens of species of birds right outside the window as we're having breakfast together. So romantic. And they even had a Scrabble board in their living room that had the names of all the guests there in an acrostic. I mean, just the attention to detail was second to none. Is that what Jesus is doing here? as he prepares a place for us in our forever home? Maybe. I mean, is that what Jesus is saying? Is it a particular place for each particular person? Do we get customized, tailor-made rooms? Jesus was, after all, a carpenter on earth, so is he going to the Home Depot in heaven, the heavenly Home Depot in the sky, and he's getting some two-by-fours, and he's nailing them in, in your room, and he's getting the right colors. Okay, I think this lady wants sea breeze, and this, midnight blue would be perfect for this person. And then he works on all the amenities. And Is that what Jesus is doing? Well, perhaps, but I think perhaps not. So how is Jesus preparing a place for his disciples? Well, he is making his home Listen, listen, church, he is making his home in heaven hospitable for redeemed sinners like you and me through his blood on the cross. Through his atoning sacrifice on the cross, through his death-defying resurrection, that's how Jesus is, is preparing a place for us. And Jesus opens up his eternal home to us. And if you have trusted in his provisions for salvation, Jesus is making provisions for you, for all eternity, to be with him forever. And that place, by the way, is not a temporary resting place. This is permanent. It's eternal. And, and who's preparing it? Who does he say is preparing it? Jesus. Jesus, I myself prepare a place for you. Not the angels, not glorified saints, not his servants, Jesus himself because he was the one, he had to be the only one who had to make the only way to eternal life. Angels couldn't do it, saints couldn't do it. The only way to life in our forever home is through Jesus, only Jesus. And we'll get into that more next week as we look at verses four through six. But how could a people impinged with such darkness in our hearts approach a place with unapproachable glorious, brilliant light. Well, only if the one who is the light of the world shines in our hearts first and dispels the darkness, which he does through the gospel. So Jesus is preparing us to be his people of his eternal home. You know when you're on a road trip and you're in your car and you're driving at night and you're just so exhausted, you've been driving all day and you're in the middle of nowhere and then you see off in the distance, there's a motel, and you're like, oh, finally, a place to rest, a place to lay our head 
And as you pull up to the hotel, it says in neon, no vacancy. And your heart just drops. There is no such sign in heaven. There's always vacancy in heaven for those who trust in Jesus. See, Jesus made our reservations in heaven, and he did so at the cross. Heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. So he goes to prepare a place for us, and then look what he says, and I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now, I am not a Bible scholar, but I know enough to know that when God promises something, when Jesus says something, when he promises something, you can take it to the bank. This is a promise. You know what he's saying? I'm coming back for you. This is the second coming. Oh, what blessed assurance this should give. Jesus won't frivolously prepare for guests that never arrive. He's not twiddling his thumbs, rocking on a rocking chair, wondering when his guests will arrive. No, he is promising, you know what? I'm not waiting for you. I'm coming back for you. His return is as guaranteed as his departure was. And we forget that the return of Christ is a part of the gospel. It's also good news. He doesn't leave us as orphans. He says, I take you, I bring you along with me to myself. One translation says, I take you to be face to face with me. Ooh, so good. Now, who's doing all the work here? You? Me? Jesus. So, even with their impending departures and denials, Their failures do not void their heavenly reservations. Folks, this is all grace. And we get to spend eternity, now you better amen this, we get to spend eternity with Jesus in his presence forever. Okay, that's moderate excitement. Maybe I didn't say it loud. I haven't been known for being quiet. We get to spend eternity with Jesus forever. There we go. I mean, look at verses three and four. Notice the first person pronouns. If I go and prepare, I prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. It's all about Jesus. With open arms, he takes us into his personal embrace and that is what makes heaven, heaven. Jesus. Jesus makes it heaven. You know, if you could have all the eternal glory of heaven, the streets of gold, the pearly gates, all this splendor, let's say you could have an infinite ice cream buffet, and let's say you actually had mansions in heaven, you had all this bliss, but you didn't have Jesus, would you want to be there? Because how you answer that question may reveal the state of your heart. Heaven ain't heaven without Jesus. Imagine if... Uh, a man is engaged to his bride-to-be, his fiance, and he prepares a honeymoon suite for her. So for the night of their wedding, or maybe like a cabin in the woods or something. So he goes to this honeymoon suite and he sprinkles rose petals everywhere. And he gets some, some silk linens. And he sprays potpourri everywhere so it just smells so nice. And he has the right mood lighting. He sets up a bubble bath in the, in the bathroom and sets out some refreshments. He's got some romantic music playing Now, it's his beloved that makes it a honeymoon suite. Because without his beloved, it's not a honeymoon suite. 
If it's just him by himself, that's lonely, that's awkward. Quite frankly, that's creepy. (laughs) It's Jesus that makes heaven heaven. Samuel Rutherford says it this way, Oh, my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without thee, it would be a hell. And if I could be in hell and have thee still, it would be a heaven to me, for thou art all the heaven I want. Now we know heaven is heaven because Jesus is there, and hell is hell because his presence is not felt there. But we see in Philippians 1.23 this similar kind of notion. Paul writes that he desires to depart, that means to die, and to be with Christ. Not to be in heaven, to be with Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.8, he says, to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Which dispels, by the way, this is a side note, it dispels this notion of soul sleep. That when, it's this theological concept that when we die, that we go into like the spiritual comatose state until Jesus comes back for us. That's not what the Bible says. In fact, when Jesus is on the cross and he's speaking to the thief on the cross who says, hey, Rabbi, remember me when you come into your kingdom? What does Jesus say to him? Today, I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. Today, paradise. He describes heaven as paradise, but mostly he says, you will be with me. Jesus is what makes heaven paradise. And so Christians, listen, the best room to be in is any room that Jesus is in. My hope is not in a mansion. It's in the magnificent grace through Jesus. My hope is not in a gilded castle. It's in sufficient payment for my sin. My hope is not in a palace. It's in a perfect Savior who promises to give us eternal life. So the disciples are troubled. And maybe you are here and you are troubled. They're troubled because they're about to be separated from Jesus, but Jesus assures them that where he is, they'll be with him also because he's going to go get them and he's going to bring them to himself. He's going to get us and bring us to himself. They will be separated from him for a time, but not for long. Jesus is saying, I'm coming back for you to be with me at home forever. So why do we have this internal yearning for home? Everybody does. Christian, atheist, agnostic, Buddhist, Muslim, everyone has this internal longing for home. Why? Because Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has put eternity into the human heart. We were made for this. We were made to live forever. And deep down, everyone, no matter how much you suppress it, no matter how much you deny it, deep down there is a longing for God because God put that longing there. As persons crafted in his image, we are eternal beings with this innate longing and capacity for eternal life. C.S. Lewis put it so poignantly, if we find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. So perhaps a troubled heart is a heart out of balance, longing for true home. Home is where the heart is. But I say more accurately, home is where Jesus is. And so we can quiet our hearts, our troubled hearts, not because our concerns are meaningless, but because the Son of God himself personally loves us and wants us to be with him forever. Is that a comfort to you? Oh, I hope it's a comfort to you. I know it's a comfort for me. My mom 
has been struggling with MS for 30 plus years, and I have seen her suffer so much for so long. And we don't know how much time she has left. I guess that's true for all of us, but we know that she's near the end. And I read this passage, and I think about one day, she will be in perfect health, in a perfect body, in a perfect place, in the perfect light of glory with the perfect person, Jesus, and she'll finally be home. And in Jesus, forever, we finally get to be home. Heaven is home because Jesus is there, welcoming his followers forever. So here's what we're going to do. You can go ahead and dim the lights. You know, it's good to meditate. That means to dwell your thoughts on heaven with Jesus. In fact, Colossians 3 speaks to that fact. It says that uh, set your minds, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Not on things on earth, things above. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. It's saying, think about heaven. There's a reason it's mentioned in the Bible over 600 times. Dwell your thoughts on heaven, but not just heaven, heaven with Jesus. 